Hello and welcome to the GT podcast. Some of you might know I recently-ish graduated from uh, Uni of York studying computer science. And I actually think I'm quite lucky because I am legitimately quite a big nerd. Um, so it's not just the industry I work in, but, but I, do, I do actually think data science is really cool. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, and I don't want this to sound like the, the start of a TED talk or like the intro to my cover letter or anything like that. Um, but I do actually think so many of us are quite data obsessed. And as proof of this, I'd like to bring up Spotify Wrapped. Now, some of you might know what that is, some of you might not. For those of you that don't know what Spotify Wrapped is, uh, sort of the music streaming giant Spotify every year produces a bit of a summary of what you've been listening to that year. And that might include like your top five songs, your top five artists, and other stuff like your favorite genre and number of genres. Lots of pretty graphs and stuff like that. Um, and every, the, the world loves that. Everybody gets so excited by it. It's the highlight of the year for a lot of people. Uh, just look on Instagram. Now, <laughs> now, I'll spare you the pain of going through mine. Don't worry. Uh, I'll leave that to the imagination. But even outside of work, I do actually spend quite a lot of time thinking about data and thinking in data. And over New Year's, I met up with some old friends from school and adult friendships. It's one of those where we're really close friends, really good friends, but we meet up maybe once a year all together uh, because we're all over the place and we can never agree on a date. I'm sure you can relate. Um, and this time we met on New Year's Eve and we thought it'd be nice to have kind of a summary of the last 12 months of our lives, just to update each other what's been going on. Um, so naturally, I asked myself all the normal New Year's review questions like, what's the most common emoji that I've texted this year? Or I wonder how many hours I've spent driving. Now, of course, all this data is being collected by your phone. So uh, those of you that have ever received a text from me, probably your text has included one of these bad boys right there. Turns out I've, I've sent at least 2,400 of these in the last year. That's quite a lot. That's quite a lot, especially when, if we can get to the next slide, especially when you consider that uh, that is my, uh, that's formatted a bit weirdly, that that is my um, most texted word that's over three letters long, because it's under three letters, nobody cares about. Um, and I've texted that 3,135 times, which makes the laughing emoji, like to put it in perspective, that's like a lot of times I've used it. Um, I know, yeah. Uh, in terms of like other interesting words in my top 100, nothing's particularly interesting apart from number 90 on the list of my top 100 words, which maybe unsurprisingly for some is coffee. Uh, thanks, Dan. <laughs> uh, which turns out I've texted only 206 times. That's, I've definitely had a lot more than 206 coffees in the last year. Um, so that's that for text. Obviously, everybody needs to know this kind of stuff. Like, it's basic data, thanks to the Freedom of Information app. Um, in terms of driving, and this is a really interesting one, because people, I don't know, I don't know, people forget to, to, to think about this, but I've spent 535 hours driving, which I, I have no idea if that's a lot or not. I have no idea how to gauge this, this kind of information. But that's 22 days. That's a lot of my life that I've spent driving. 
to put it kind of into context, walking, I've only spent 327 hours. I know, it's a bit embarrassing. It's less than one hour a day. And to make matters worse, this is how, I don't know why I've chosen me. This just means like restaurant or pub or stuff like that. Um, I've spent 350 hours in that, uh, which is significantly more than hours walking because I'm usually walking to the pub, right? <laughs> makes sense, makes sense. Right, but more recently, I was thinking about the contents of my prayer. And I would really like to see a Spotify rap style summary of what I pray for. Uh, I'd, I'm really curious, sort of like prayers of petition versus prayers of worship, or even the, the amount of people's names that I've used in prayer, kind of minutes I've spent praying, all this kind of data. I'd I can visualize the graphs in my head, but I'm not going to bore you with that too much. Um, but I also wonder what you pray for when you pray. Now, as Holly and Josie mentioned, we've started a new series in Philippians. Um, and Philippians is one of the, the Paulinic epistles. I really don't like that word, Paulinic epistle. It's just, what does that even mean? Uh, what it does mean, it, uh, it's a letter. It's a letter written by Paul. So the New Testament uh, has a series of letters. We call those the Paulinic epistles because you want to be fancy. Uh, but they are letters written by Paul to different churches, to different groups of people. And um, we've been going through the letter of Paul to the church in Philippi, which is uh, a city or was a city in Greece. And broadly speaking, all of Paul's letters have the same sort of shape. They've got the same sort of like uh, layout. So they all open with this specific opening that has a greeting and a salutation and then a prayer. Uh -huh. So that means that we can actually see the contents of Paul's prayer. It's very nicely laid out for us. And in Philippians 1, uh, verses 9 to 11, we can actually, we can actually read uh, his prayer. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you might be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. So, abounding love, making us pure for God's glory. That's what's going on here. And now notice that this is not a prayer of material needs or of healing or for a big decision or anything like that. Now, it's obviously not wrong to pray for any of those things. And we even see Paul doing that in other, in other parts of, of Scripture. Uh, but this prayer just isn't that. Not that it's not a bold prayer. In fact, I would argue that this is a priority one prayer. This is a prayer about their Christianity. This is a prayer about their life together with Jesus. It's a, it's a gospel-centered prayer for spiritual vitality. Now, Paul is a, is a hugely logical writer, and I, I really enjoy this. Um, the, the way he writes everything, there's very deliberate um, form and structure to everything he writes. Actually, there's a, there is a bit of a fan group of people that like to map Paul's uh, speech into kind of formal logic. Um, and for those of you who are wondering, like, why do I know this? Uh, if you know him, Matt Morgan introduced me to this. So it all makes, uh, yeah, it all makes sense. Um, but 
in, the, in this prayer, even in this three verses of prayer, absolutely no exception. There is so, it's so interesting. I love it. There's this so specific structure and every word that he's used, he's used very deliberately. So this lets us break down the prayer into three very distinct movements, the aim, the hope, and the goal. So the aim is abounding love. The hope is making us holy. And then the goal is God's glory. So we kind of have a what, a how, and a why. So the aim, abounding love. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and in depth of insight. So this summer, I was in Rome, I was at the Vatican, and I was looking at the kind of the millions of pounds of art and of architecture and everything around me. And I was thinking about how different it must be to when church first started, the first church. And actually, Acts 16 gives us a bit of a glimpse of what that first church was, was probably like. We can, we can read about, about this first church, which is founded by a, a rich fashionista. So far, maybe this does sound quite painful. Uh, but this rich fashionista named Lydia, um, but not surrounded by priests and by uh, art and all this stuff. It was Lydia and her family, uh, a formerly demon-possessed girl, a hardened prison guard and his family. And it's not a group of people where we can instantly see why they'd come together, where we can instantly see why they'd, they'd want to, to love each other. Because it's, it's really easy to love people that are the same as us. But that's not exactly the, what's happening here. It's not exactly a group of people, you know, in perfect union in which love would abound more and more easily. And that's true. They had no magic solution that made loving each other effortless. But what they did have is a gospel. And they let Jesus, through the gospel, transform their hearts. They were very different people, but their church was a gospel culture. Now, a gospel culture, when I say gospel culture, what I mean is, is this kind of culture of deeply shared love, created by and centered on Jesus. And in fact, what did he say? In John 13, 35, uh, it says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if... Does anybody know? Yes, absolutely. If you have love for one another, if you have love for one another. Now, unfortunately, we hear it in many stories, often even within churches, when this isn't the case. When church isn't a place of love, but a place of politics or a place of shame or unforgiveness. But imagine the opposite. Imagine a church. Imagine a church that continuously and constantly abounds in love more and more and more. Imagine G2 if we became a church that doesn't just love, that is known for ridiculous, outrageous love. Now, how, how, how do we get to this place of love and unity? The answer, again, is in the Bible, is in the gospel. John 3.27 says, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. So we must pray it into existence. Now, I'm not saying this because I think we're not a loving congregation. 
but I also, I don't think Paul is praying this for the Philippians because he didn't think they were a loving congregation. Uh, so so why, why is he praying this? Because there is no end to the growth of love. John Chrysostom said, Paul desires that a debt of love should always be owing. Roman, 8, uh, Roman 13, 8, again, Paul writing this, uh, echoes it and says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. Love is a debt we'll always owe, and the one cost we will never regret paying. Now, in the English language, perhaps more broadly in the human condition, we tend to have a slight problem with, with this word love. I think it's, it's more of a, a, of a misconception. Because this isn't what we'd regard as, as worldly love. Sure, maybe it's emotional, but it's not so much a feeling, but a determination. The world, see, places limits on love. It kind of comes with a bit of a small print. Once the feeling dies, the love dies. That's it. But God's love in Christ isn't like that. God's love is covenantal. It's a choice we make that outlives the feeling. It's forever. And when he created us, that is the love that he made us with. And this is what Paul is on about when he, when he prays. He doesn't just pray that they will love more just by chance and good spirits, but that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and in depth of insight. Now again, Paul is being really particular, really deliberate with his language here. And I, and I think it's really interesting, this word knowledge uh, in this sentence, because we probably don't tend to think of love as like an informed feeling. But the word knowledge here means a personal knowledge of God. A mature grasp of, of the good news of the gospel. See, because true biblical knowledge, uh, true biblical Biblical love requires, calls for this knowledge. We grow in love when we learn more about God's love for us. And then Paul goes on and says uh, about the, the depth of insight. Because in addition, love calls for discernment. And discernment also might be a strange word to hear in this context. But discernment helps us love better by allowing us to focus on God's kind of love instead of our kind of wishy-washy, will it last kind of love. It's love that is able to practically see what is right and what is wrong. I like to call it wise love. Um, and what, what is wise love? Well, it's how we deal with stuff like when somebody sins against us or how we deal with conflict biblically or even how we encourage each other in, in this big family of Christ of ours. Now, how do we get this kind of love? Well, what's Paul doing? By praying for it in all humility. So that's the aim of Paul's prayer, abounding love. Abounding love, making us pure for God's glory. Now imagine just if we prayed like this in our church. Now, be warned. Because biblical love requires commitment and sacrifice. And it's not, this means by nature, it's not always this fresh and fun feeling. 
However, there is a bigger hope attached to this. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, that they'll become profoundly Christ-like people. Not half-hearted, hard-to-read people, but full-bodied, spirit-filled, real-deal Christians, pure and blameless for the day of Christ, by his grace and for his glory. Again, this can only come from God. We pray this into existence. God alone is pure and blameless, and he alone makes us so. And watch out. Again, Paul is very specific with the language. He doesn't say perfect and sinless, but pure and blameless. Because the Philippians weren't perfect people, much like any humans ever. And Paul does go into that later, into the letter. That's kind of the the purpose of a lot of these letters. Um, But what he prays for here isn't for perfection. But he prays for this discerning, knowledge-bound love. And he prays that it's not just going to come into consideration for the big for the big decisions in life where they don't know what to do, kind of God take the wheel kind of moments, but that this will become second nature to them. As we love Jesus more and more, our love for him abounds. And we start to change. Our daily patterns, our habits start to shift. As we love more and more, something has to give. We discover that this kind of love requires sacrifice. Maybe we sacrifice half an hour of our, of our sleep time to spend some time praying. Maybe we sacrifice an episode of our favorite TV show to just read the Bible a bit more, get closer to God. Maybe when we're in town, we don't just walk past the homeless person, but we stop and we, we ask the name. Love like this actually has little to do with feelings and everything to do with sacrifice. It's not about us. It's entirely about other people. Now, the thing is that this is exactly the love that we're called to give. This is the same love that pinned Jesus to the cross. And that's the thing about this kind of love. Sacrificial love makes us pure. Sacrifice leads to sanctification. On the cross, Jesus sacrificed himself so that we could be a people pure and blameless before God. And actually, this works for the way we love to amongst our friends, in our churches, in our workplaces, and in our relationships. When we love sacrificially, we are partnering with Jesus to make ourselves pure and holy. I recently heard a story from a church that was expanding really rapidly. And in, in their parish, a new, a new state, a new development uh, had, had been built. And the guy talking to us was the guy who was in charge of kind of the outreach project for, for that area. Um, and they had a massive increase of people. So uh, we were asking, like, what, what's the secret? What did you do? Um, and he, had, he, he was telling us he had this ambitious idea to deliver a cake for every house in uh, the new estate. Uh, and maybe it doesn't sound super ambitious, it's just a cake, but each of the cakes had a secret 
ingredient. Any guesses what a secret ingredient was? Yes, what kind of love? Sacrificial love. Sacri there we go. They had one rule. Every cake had to be home-baked, never store-bought. Why? Because everybody can just hop onto Lidl and buy a cheap cake from there. But to bake dozens and dozens of cakes by hand, it's not easy. It takes effort. It takes this kind of self-sacrificing love. And what happens with self-sacrificing love? It leads to sanctification. So then, how do we get there? We choose Jesus. We choose his type of self-sacrificial love time and time again. And this is why this needs prayer. Because it's, it's, it's a ridiculous, radical Countercultural way to live, and it relies on huge amounts of, of bravery and humility. The thing that transforms us from just a group of people, from a social club into a church, is Jesus. And when a whole church finds Jesus, that church becomes radiantly beautiful. They don't become beautiful because all of a sudden they become perfect and sinless. But because they come to the one who is, and they put aside their own desires, and they love each other sacrificially. They don't become beautiful because they find new concepts that suddenly makes life a little bit more manageable, but because they find the one who overcame the world. This reminds me of that story of Moses when he went up the mountain to be with God. Uh, I think it's in Exodus. And when he came down, the skin of his face was shining. He had, was glowing. He had been transformed by glory. And he came down and everybody saw. They saw him. They saw his face and they knew. They knew he'd been with God. He was radiant. Not because he made himself that way, but because he was in the presence of God. See, we can't manufacture this on our own. We can't fake our way. You know, fake it till you make it doesn't apply here. We can't fake our way into a pure and blameless church. We can get it only by being with God. And Paul understood this. And this is, where, this is why he prayed this for the church in Philippi. And this is why we need to pray it too. Because at its core, this is an exciting prayer. At its core, this is a prayer for revival. Abounding love, making us pure for God's glory. We never outgrow this prayer. We can only grow into it. It's that big. And imagine if we started praying this for G2. So we've got Paul's what and we've got his why. We have the aim and we have the hope. We know what he wants the Philippians to be doing more of, which is abounding in love. And we've got what this leads to as well, which is becoming pure and blameless. Now, the goal, the goal, the goal is that we become a group of people filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul actually has a bigger, much catchier goal than this, that this all works for the glory of God. 
And what, is it, what, is, what does he mean by that? You can see the verse is, through the fruit of, oh, can we go to, nope, that's right. It's just a tree instead of a fruit. Uh, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, these words echo with those of Jesus in John 15, where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. In other words, what Paul is saying is that our acts of sacrificial love bring us closer to abiding in Jesus. In turn, in turn, uh, who in turn brings about this good fruit, and all this then brings glory to God. Paul's end goal for the Philippians, his um, his his aim for them. Uh, his big dream for them is that when Christ returns, the Philippians will be like fruit trees at harvest time. And their branches fall, their good deeds overflowing for Christ. Not because they aren't loving and, you know, need a bit of a motivating kick to get going. Um, and not because they are a particularly sinful community and Paul needs to point out and remove the sins. But because God is worthy of the glory of the glory that this process brings. The Philippians are already a loving church. But God is always worthy of more glory. So Paul prays more love for the Philippians. And since God is always worthy of more glory, this is a prayer that never runs out. It's a prayer that can be answered but never fulfilled. Yes, we are a loving church, but we need to love more. However loving we are, we need to love more because God is worthy of the glory. When I was writing this preach, I shared my notes with Ellie and she read through this section and she read this bit and said, but why? And not because she doesn't know, but because... <laughs> not because she doesn't know but she asked me and I thought why why because I think we often really overcomplicate this why is God worthy of the glory it's a really important question because and it's because that this pattern this abounding love which leads to our purification to our sanctification isn't something that us humans came up with our on our own at all Actually, one of the most famous Bible verses uh, out there, I think, I, I think I read a statistic that it's the most memorized Bible verse in, in the Bible. Don't know how they could possibly record this data, but anyway. Um, it's is John 3.16, and it explains, it gives the message simply and, and flawlessly. And it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God's love for us abounds so much that he made the ultimate sacrifice. He sacrificed his son to make us a pure and holy people, bringing us into eternal life and his glory. This
prayer of Paul really is a, is a tried and tested uh, formula. And you know what? We have thousands of years of data to back this. From Paul's prayer to the, to the fellowship of uh, the church I talked about, uh, baking cakes, we can see through love, the gospel changes love in lives and God is glorified. Abounding love, making us pure for God's glory. And this can start right now if we put the priorities of the gospel at the center of our prayer lives. And I'd like us to, to, start, to start right now. See, this letter is a result of a friendship between uh, Paul and the church in Philippi. Pastor Matt Chandler said he considers that the Philippians uh, were not just sheep in his care, but friends in his heart. Paul prays this prayer sacrificially. He prays it out of love, out of fellowship. This is that koinonia that Jamie was talking to us uh, about last week. And it'd be great if we could do this for our friends as well. So what if we all prayed like this in, in, in GT? What if we all pr prayed uh, Paul's prayers? Um, it's a simple but bold prayer that our love would abound more and more, making us pure and bringing glory to God. And what if God saw fit to answer this prayer, as he very often does? Imagine what that would look like. If we really long for this kind of ever-increasing, ever-maturing, ever-abounding gospel culture. If we really do, then let's pray for it. Not just for ourselves, but for our friends and family and for our church. So I think it'd be great if we could actually put this into practice. So we'll have a little bit of time now to pray. And to begin with, I'd just like you to, to pray that God will open the eyes of your heart to see the people that he wants you to pray this prayer of, of Paul for. And we'll put the prayer on the screen. Uh, but for now, I don't want you to pray for the people. I just want you, you, you will all have some post-it notes uh, on your chairs. And there are pens as well on and around your chairs to share if you need to. Uh, but I want you all to take a minute to, to pray for God to reveal the people he wants you to pray for. So we'll do that now. So if you're praying, do, do keep praying. Um, if you have written down some names, that's great. If you're still praying, do, do write down some uh, some names, maybe eight to five. I won't be checking, but yeah, between eight to five. And like pray, like Paul prayed for his friends, the Philippians, sacrificially and out of love. My challenge is that to commit sacrificially to pray for these five or however many people you've, you've written down and to pray this with real hope and with expectation. That's how we're called to pray. Pray this big, bold prayer with expectation. And let's just see what God does with this. And my challenge is to pray this 
you'd like to take this challenge, it is to, to pray this every day. The same people in your post-it notes. Maybe after you finish praying for them now, uh, take a picture of your post-it notes or make a reminder or write them down on your phone or something like that. But my challenge is to pray for these five people now. And if you're up for the challenge, to commit sacrificially to pray for these for, for until God, God does something. And this doesn't have to be... Um, they don't have to all be Christian people. They don't all have to be non-Christian people because that's, that's the beauty of the gospel. It, it can work in an evangelistic way uh, for non-Christians. It can work with somebody that's struggling in their faith. And as we've discussed, this love, we can never have enough of it. So we can work with somebody that's also doing fantastic. So select your people. And um, that's my challenge for you to commit to pray for them. And why don't we start right now? Paul's uh, prayer is on the screen. So why don't we start by each praying uh, by name for each of the friends we've written down this prayer.